welcome up Elder Doug as he comes. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Thank you. On, on behalf of Pastor Mark and myself, we just want to thank you for, for all of you for the appreciation that you showed us uh, last Sunday. Pastor Mark, that was a blessing, wasn't it? Uh, we just feel blessed uh, in this church. Um, Brother Al, good word this morning. Pastor Mark, good word this morning. Uh, obviously, uh, we live in some tumultuous times uh, at the hills of another historic election. Our nation is as divided as ever. And, uh, you know, the last four weeks, uh, we heard the, the message, you know, vote, vote like your life depended on it. Vote like your life depended on it. What if every pastor in America today stood up? And it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on. What if every pastor said, pray as if your life depended on it? Just think what a difference that makes. And I, I'm a glass half full guy. I don't believe that we're on the cusp of a civil war. I just, I just think that we just need to get to work, dial down the temperature, okay, and uh, get to work. And then God will do the rest. But no, I don't think we're on, a, on the cusp of a civil war, as, as divided as our country is. I mentioned uh, the last time I preached on the holiness of God, Richard, uh, Dr. Richard Loveless who's a former church history professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, he identified two critically important preconditions of spiritual renewal. I do believe and I hope that we're on the, the cusp of a spiritual awakening, okay? But Dr. Loveless says two things have to happen, an awareness of the holiness of God, which we, re which we touched on, you know, three weeks ago, an awareness of the holiness of God, secondly, an awareness of the depth of sin. And that word sin is something, uh, those of you who are new to the word, you know, welcome. Not a lot of churches even tell you what the word sin is much less talk about the depth of sin. I'm going to help you do a deep dive, probably more deeper, and this is not rated PG. This is going to be probably rated R and X, okay? So just a forewarning to, to, to the kids sitting in the crowd. These two elements are necessary preconditions of spiritual awakening because they prepare God's people's hearts to receive the gospel. John Calvin said that these two factors, the holiness of God and awareness of the depth of our sin, these two factors are essential to that degree of self-knowledge which drives a person to seek after Christ, and they're deeply interrelated. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that you would speak to the unbeliever as well as the believer and show us just how pervasive sin is in all of our lives. I pray that people would hear not only sin, but also the word of your grace that covers all sin. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if knowledge of God and knowledge of self are preconditions, these are preconditions of spiritual life because revival involves spiritual awakening. What people wake up to in the light of a revival is our own sinful condition and the nature of a holy God. In order to fully grasp the concept of sin, and by the way, you don't know how deep and wide and how and deep is the love of God unless you know how deep is your sin. I'm old school. I mean, when I was, when I first, you know, grew up, you know, in the church, I heard sin preached every Sunday, every Sunday. Now, you know, the, the way our culture is, sin is, is like eating devil's chocolate cake or, or cheesecake. They say, oh, that's decadent. That's sinful. That's as far as it goes. But in order to fully understand that concept of what sin is, it'll be helpful for us to look at the way things ought to be in God's world, okay? In God's world, what does that look like? Well, the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Joel, they dreamed of God's kingdom as one in which human crookedness is straightened out and those rough places are made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise would be made humble. These prophets dreamed of a time when crying and weeping would cease and parents and grandparents could go to sleep without weapons under the bed or worrying about drive-through shootings, drive-by shootings that has taken so many lives. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. The Hebrew prophets had a term for this inner connection, this inner weaving of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. They called it shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or just calling a ceasefire between the Jews and the Palestinians, all right? It's more than that. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing. It's wholeness. It's delight. It's this rich state of affairs in which all of our needs are satisfied. We don't need to go looking for any, anything else. All of our gifts and energies are maximized. Where David could do probably a dozen <laughs> languages and all kinds of languages that, that he's interested in. Where the Creator and Savior welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's how you first look at sin. You don't look at sin uh, from the evil perspective. You look at the sin, sin, you define it by the way things ought to be. So evil, on the other hand, is the spoiling of this concept of shalom, whether it's physically by disease, morally, spiritually, or otherwise. In that, sin, in that sense, sin violates and spoils shalom. The original word for sin simply means missing the target, missing the mark. It's a wandering from the path we ought to be on. It's a straying from the fold, a sheep straying from the fold. Dr. Cornelius Plantinga, who is the former president of Calvin 
Calvin College or Calvin University, he said, sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is frittering our lives away on trivial pursuits. And I would add binging on mindless entertainment. I'd throw that in the mix as well. Now, I'm, I'm talking to me, guys. I'm not talking to you guys because, you know, <laughs> Glenda, you don't have to clap so <laughs> You know, the, the ladies, did you know that NFL kickoff starts in half an hour? And, and do, you know, do you know that we, Pastor Mark and I, can watch football straight from noon? And by the way, there's a night game now, for those of you who don't know. It's 7. It doesn't end until 10.30. Pastor Mark and I can get together. We can watch football straight from noon to 10.30 without blinking an eye, and we might even listen to our wives at halftime, maybe. I'm preaching at Pastor Mark and me. Our Sin is blindness and deafness. Sin is both overstepping the line and the failure to reach the line, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at your door and sinning. We attack or we invade or neglect our divine calling. For centuries, centuries, hundreds of years, theologians have talked about original sin. Some define this as a distortion of the image of God within us or an absence of something that was originally their creation. Well, both of those definitions lead to a susceptibility to sin. In his book on the seven deadly sins, Anthony Campolo, he states it more strongly. He says, each of us comes into the world with a predisposition to live in such a way as to inflict pain on those who love us most and to, def to offend the God who cares for us infinitely. So how did this sin begin? Let's look at it. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. I think the scriptures will pop up here. Genesis 3, 1 to 7, I'm preaching from, I always preach from the ESV. So, sorry uh, if we've got a little uh, disconnection here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 2, and the woman said to said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed figs, leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So in creating the first two people, Adam and Eve, God freely chose to bind himself, connect himself to them and all creation and produce this gracious relationship of love that is always growing and flourishing. 
Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They were sinless and placed in a situation untouched by evil. We now know that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, suddenly became awareness of their nakedness and guilt. They sought to hide, only to be confronted by God himself when he asked that question. Adam, where are you? As if, as if God didn't know. And they were driven, they were expelled from paradise, from Eden. Well, this story of the fall tells us this is key, because we always read that, and we say, that's them. They, they caused all this. No, 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 no. We're not only creatures of God. We are creatures who are rebellious creatures against our Creator. We're living lives that are separated from God, without the peace, without the harmony and vision by God at creation. When we understand and accept this, the story of Adam and Eve, the serpent in the garden, it becomes the story of every person. Adam and Eve is your story. It's my story. They are you and they are me. It is in this sense that Adam and Eve, or every person, their experience is our universal experience. There's something in us that impels us to just put ourselves and our interests first, deep within us. Sometimes, so suddenly, we can't identify it. The purpose, God's purpose, emerges. And, and we, we can't identify this urging but it just pulls at us. We just want to be independent of God. We want to be the master of our fate. We want to be the captain of our souls. At the very core, that's who we are. None of us will live very long before we begin to put ourselves where God should be, which is at the center, okay? We don't live too long before we begin to assert our independence, our sovereignty, before we begin to live as though we were adequate. We can do it on our own. Well, this rejection of God's rule over your life, over my life, that is sin. And it separates us from God eternally. Because you know what? He's going to give us our wish. He'll give us our independence for eternity. We were created in God's image. We were whole, but sin entered this picture. Adam and Eve were tempted by the, certain, they, uh, by the serpent. They chose their own way against God's will. So we marred the image. We perverted God's wholeness. We rebelled and we became fugitives, not only from God, but from God's true intention for our life. The struggle of our life is an inner and outer struggle. Okay? As we wander, we, we just wander aimlessly, seeking for the shalom, for the peace that only God can give. Augustine, St. Augustine, said that our souls are restless until we rest in God. This is the way Paul experienced it, and he expressed it in Romans 7. Okay? I'm going to weave in and out of the Old Testament and the New Testament today. Uh, Romans 7, verse 18. Paul says, for I know that nothing, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
Verse 19, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but what? But sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I side with St. Augustine. I side with the Reformers, Calvin, Luther, in their view that Paul's primary reference in this chapter, chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, is for believers. He is aiming it straight at believers, not to unbelievers. There are whole school of theologians who say that this is aimed at unbelievers. I, uh, you know, respectfully disagree because in, in verse 20... Earlier in Romans 3, we already know no one seeks after God. No one desires to keep his law. I mean, unbelievers don't have this moral tension in them. They're dead. If you're a non-believer, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. You don't have this moral struggle with, oh, should I do this? Should I do that? You don't. You do what your flesh dictates for you to do. Okay? Is the the Christian that Paul is talking about. Okay? Paul states in verse 25, Paul states the tension between good and evil that occurs in all Christians who are already righteous in Christ. He is writing this letter to Christians who are already righteous in Christ but are not yet perfected, we won't be perfected until the day of redemption. So Paul's words perfectly describe your experience, my experience, if we are believers in Christ, who are free from the condemnation of the law, yet we are profoundly aware of how how far short we fall of God's absolute standard of righteousness. We can't do it by ourselves. However we talk about it, sooner or later, morally and spiritually sensitive people will discover not just a proneness to sin, but sin as a reality. Sin is a power that is a regular part of our lives. Paul's word is not an isolated word in Scripture. It is witness of the whole Scripture, the whole Scripture. And he's, he's, he's doing a personal confession here which more of us, all of us as believers, need to do on a daily basis, is this kind of confession right here. It is a touching expression of this raging. You talk about a civil war, this is a civil war that's going on inside of a person. I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That is a language of a believer. Non-believers don't speak like that. How often do we feel that ripping inside of us, the tearing apart of our efforts to be whole, to be centered, to be headed in a clear direction? 
Well, sin is at the heart of our lives. It penetrates to the core. It's not expressed in the moment. It is there. It's beneath the surface at all times. It's ready to break out in attitudes, in our attitudes, in our actions that will be destructive. That's what we mean when we talk about original sin, okay? In a sense, there's nothing original about it because it's a virus. We're all infected by it, okay? In his classic book uh, on confession, St. Augustine told the story of his youthful escapade of just stealing a bunch of pears from a neighbor's tree, Okay, He wrote, St. Augustine wrote that late one night, a group of youngsters went to shake down and rob the tree. They took a great quantity of fruit from the tree, not to eat, not to eat you know, the fruit themselves, but simply to throw them to the pigs. They just wanted to steal pears to throw to the pigs. So Augustine went on to berate himself for the depth of sin that this act revealed. He said, quote, It was my only love of mischief that made me do it. The evil in me was foul, and I loved it. My soul was vicious and broke away from your safekeeping to seek its own destruction. Close quote. Well, a person might ask, why would a harmless prank like stealing fruit from the Jones's tree, why why would this harmless prank looms so large in the mind of this great theologian, one of the four great theologians of all time, Augustine was. Well, by his own admission, Augustine might as well have taken a mistress, he might as well fathered a kid out of wedlock, and indulged in every fleshly passion. That's the way he felt when he wrote those confessions, just for stealing a, a few pairs. But Augustine, Augustine saw in the pears, the pear incident, his true nature and the nature of all of us, all humankind. In each of us, there's sin, and sin is universal. It's everywhere. Whether we reckon with it or not, it will reckon with us. Sin will reckon with us. It is deadly. It is destructive. It's destructive of our relationship with God. It's destructive with the relationship with those we love. And it's certainly destructive of the inner harmony and peace that our world longs for. Let's look at the rest of the Garden of Eden story. Back to uh, Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the pres- from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Remember that question? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, well, this is a great one. The woman, the woman (laughs) whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? Of course, the woman said, well, you know, the serpent deceived me. And I, and I ate. Remember that old Flip Wilson line? You know, the devil made me do it. But literally, that's what she said. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of Gar- uh, Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they didn't become like gods that the serpent promised that they would become, right? Their ignorant innocence changed to better knowledge. Their nakedness became a source of shame, and they sought to cover themselves with loincloth. More seriously, their relationship and our relationship became broken. They knew guilt. They now knew guilt, and they sought to hide from God. Man and woman experienced shalom, and they lost it. Let that sink in. Man and woman had experienced shalom, and they lost it. Human beings who want to be like God, knowing good and evil, succeed only in alienating themselves from God and from each other. Even the good and fruitful earth becomes their foe. Their sin would rise to a a pitch, a fever pitch. Adam and Eve's juvenile pride and disbelief, it triggered a whole chain of disobedience, blaming and scapegoating and flight from God. Their first son, their first son, Cain, blames and kills his brother Abel. Okay? It launches the history of envy and murder within one's own family. And you can find this fratricide a few chapters later when Joseph's brothers tried to kill him over a colt because they were jealous of him. It's the same sense of jealousy and envy that's driving Cain here. So it launches this history of envy and murder within one's own family. Like his parents and the rest of the human race, Cain becomes a fugitive in the land of wandering that lies east of Eden. And there, Lamech's, and we're going to go to Genesis 4.23. I don't think that is on the screen, but I'll read it for you. Lamech's macho, macho boasting, homicidal boasting, would echo across the centuries. Civilization grows, but evil will multiply and amplify. Genesis 4.23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for simply wounding me, a young man for striking me. Verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Pastor Mark, it's a good thing that they didn't have Twitter back then. Can you imagine if, if, he, if Lamech put this on Twitter, you'd be over to his house with the CPD doing a custom notification. Hey, we know what you're about to do. We're here to help you right? I mean, this guy just needs to tone it down. There's way too much testosterone going on there. 
Well, Dr. Plantinga of Calvin University said the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts, it tears apart what God had joined together, and joins together what God had put asunder. It's like a devastating tornado. Corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back towards the formless void from which it came. To sin is to wreck our integrity, wreck our wholeness, to strip away what holds human beings together and what joins it to other human beings in an atmosphere of hospitality, justice, and delight. A sin is any act, any thought, any desire, any emotion, any word or deed, or its particular absence that displaces, displeases God and deserves blame. That's a pretty good definition. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a holy God. As St. Augustine wrote in the city of God, I'm giving you a, a whole history lesson on St. Augustine here, I know it. Uh, the city of God, he said, sin corrupts persons, groups, and whole societies. Corruption disturbs shalom, twists, weakening, snapping the thousands of communal bonds that give particular human beings integrity, that tie them to one another. The Heidelberg Catechism says that we're born sinners and we human beings inculpate ourselves before we're even born. Everybody is a sinner by second nature. The reformers contend that we're not only sinners because we sin. We also sin because we are sinners. Individual corruption then inevitably leads to societal and cultural corruption. Character forms culture. Character forms culture, and then culture then forms character. We currently have a pornographic culture that both depicts and excites lust, in men and women, by the way. We have a political culture that currently represents and exacerbates public cynicism. We have a popular religious culture that both reflects and deepens the conviction that worship ought to entertain worshipers and that worship services should resemble concerts. This same popular religious culture too often also covers up the sexual abuse of women and children and men and boys at the, ha the hands of sexual predators who call themselves youth leaders and pastors. This is why we do background checks on all of, you know, on our pastoral candidates. Other forms of corruption include shoddy bridge and building construction, bribery of building inspectors, greedy condominium developers, loan sharks that charge exorbitant interest to their victims who can never, never be able to pay off the principal, much less the 900% interest. These and other human failures sometimes cause or at least exacerbate the suffering experienced by so many. But let's get back to personal sins because we can always blame the society, right? And you say, what are some specific sins? Can you name some? I don't have to because Jesus does. 
In Mark 7, 20 to 23, Mark 7, 20, 23, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The early saints happened to summarize these into seven deadly sins, which I'll preach on the next week because I need two sermons to get through sin, Pastor Mark. The filmmaker, filmmaker Woody Allen, you guys recall Woody Allen, he was involved in a controversial affair back in 1993, early 90s, with a teenage young daughter of his ex-wife and actress Mia Farrell. In an interview... He was asked to explain this affair. Explain it. You're, 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 you're involved with this teenage daughter of your ex-wife. He simply said, the heart wants what it wants. But why doesn't the heart want God? Why doesn't the heart trust God? Why doesn't the heart look childlike to God for life's joys and securities? Why doesn't the heart seek final good where it can be found? Why turn again and again to satisfactions that are short-lived and damaging? Because the heart wants what it wants. And Dr. Platinga, he said, this kind of self-centered thinking overrules everything. Inquiring into the causes of sin takes us back again and again to this intractable human will into the heart's desire that stiffens our will against all competing considerations. Like a neurotic and therapeutic shelf-worn little god, small g, our human heart keeps ending discussions by insisting that it wants what it wants. Our core problem, St. Augustine said, is that the human heart, ignoring God, turns in on itself. It tries to lift itself up. It wants to please itself and ends up debasing itself. Sin is our spiritual COVID-19, folks. It is this mysterious, systemic, infectious, and progressive attack on our spiritual respiratory system that eventually breaks it down and opens the way for hordes of opportunistic sins. This, make, this makes life progressively more miserable. I mean, conceit, for instance, just take conceit, typically generates envy among people even loved ones. It's a nasty form of resentment that eats away at the one who's doing the envying. As St. Augustine says, sin becomes the punishment of sin. The reformers came up with a number of images for our corrupt nature. It's like a diseased root. It's like a contaminated spring, a foul heart. We are wrong at the core. It's a bad strain that's gotten into the stock so that we now sin with the ease and readiness of people born to the task. After the fall, we sin by second nature. We're born sinners as some folks are born athletes. John Calvin, in his classic Institutes, he, he insisted that even the disposition to sin is sin itself. Just predisposing to sin is sin. 
So any serious Christian who subscribes to the doctrine of corruption, the centerpiece of which is the claim that even when we're good in important ways, we know, we know that we human beings are not sound at the core. Let's face it. This is why King David, the man after God's own heart, he cried out in Psalms 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Maxie and Kimberly Dunham, in their work, book called The Seven Deadly Sins, they said sin is more like the act of a traitor than that of a criminal. A criminal breaks the law of his country. A traitor betrays his country. A criminal violates the law. A traitor violates his citizenship, his identity, his trust. The context of that psalm that we just read, this is a good devotion for you. You read Psalm 51 every day for a week, and then you also read at the same time 2 Samuel 11 to 12, the context where this psalm is written. David is at home in his, pl- in his palace at Jerusalem while the other kings went out to battle. Well, that's the first sign that, you know, we should recognize right away. Hey, something's not normal here. I'll briefly summarize chapter 11 because we're out of time. I'll summarize it for you so we can get to our main text in chapter 12. David is on the roof of his palace, which overlooks the entire city of Jerusalem. He notices this very beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba who happened to be bathing. His men informs him that this is the wife of one of his generals, Uriah. And at this point, David comes up with an elaborate attempt. This is the way sin works. He comes up with an elaborate attempt to cover up the initial act of his adultery. One commentary says that it's highly unlikely that he would have made his intentions known to Bathsheba when he sent messengers, plural, to invite her for a private visit to his palace. As it is, she came in, he laid with her, she conceived and informed him, I am pregnant. Now, I know the Scriptures doesn't say it, but let's just call it what it is. It was rape. When we, men, when we try to play around with words, we just mangle it up. Just call it for what it is. At this point, instead of acknowledging his sin of adultery and repentance, repenting, David tries to cover up this act by making it look like the baby is really Uriah's. So David calls Uriah home from the front lines of battle, pretends to ask him how things are going out there in the front lines with the Ammonites. Then he tried to get Uriah drunk so he can go home and sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, of course. Well, what David didn't expect was that Uriah was an honorable man who considered himself as a soldier on active duty, and he refused to sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were fighting for their very lives, a man of great integrity. 
So when that scheme didn't work, David sent Uriah, a faithful soldier, back to the front lines where he was struck down and died. Of course, Bathsheba, any wife, would mourn at the news of her husband's death. Well, King David would take this widow under his protection as his own wife. How convenient. But make no doubt about it. Verse 27 of chapter 11. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In this single episode, David committed four out of the seven deadly sins. A list, this is the list that Pope Gregory came up with, which I'll preach about in a few weeks. Sloth? He ought to be out fighting with his soldiers rather than lounging around in the house watching NFL games. Right, Pastor Mark? Sloth? Lust? Envy? And pride? I'm king. I'm king of Israel. I can, I can have any woman I want. Not, not, you don't have to clap. <laughs> it's not like he didn't have enough concubines, right? Just need one more because I'm king. Pride. The interesting thing about this story is that there's absolutely no mention in Scripture that David was crippled with guilt at the moment of his sins. You don't read that anywhere. This is the deadly part of sin right here. Uh, Bishop Joseph Butler observed that nearly a year must have passed between the time of, of, of David's crimes, what he committed, and the time of Nathan the prophet's coming to him and challenging him to his face. Nearly a year had passed, and it does not appear from the biblical story that David had in all this even the least remorse or contrition. It leaves you wondering how a man who walked so closely with the Lord could have committed such acts of atrocity without suffering debilitating guilt. This is not vague guilt. This is not false guilt that C.S. Lewis talks about. We as human beings, we have a tendency to view ourselves more favorably than we ought to. Too lowly of ourselves as unique, God's unique creation. David managed to organize his life, organize things in such a way as to make available a different perspective on all the events in question, whether it was the act of adultery or creating the appearance that Uriah had died in legitimate battle. His death was tragic, but of course men die in battle all the time. Bathsheba, after properly mourning, became David's wife and bore him a son. All perfectly normal, right? This perspective would have been shared by everyone except for David, Bathsheba, and maybe, maybe his general Joab knew about it. Maybe. So David operates from his countryman's perspective and is able to carry on with his life normally for a whole year until the prophet Nathan tricks him about a year later by focusing David's perspective back on himself once again at which point he's appropriately stricken with guilt. Again, this is not vague guilt. It's not false guilt here. This is real, real guilt. 
And it's in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 4, Nathan asks David to intervene in a legal situation where a rich man had taken advantage of a, a poor man, took the poor man's lamb that he'd grown carefully nurtured, killed it and fed it to a guest when he could have taken his own lamb. David was then confronted with the ringing words, quote, you are the man. Verse 7, and this brought David to his knees before God. And verse 11 says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. All of those prophecies come to pass. The son, that, uh, this is Solomon's older brother, the son that David and Bathsheba conceived did die, and Absalom, David's son, slept with all of his wives in broad daylight for the Israelites to see. He led a coup that almost toppled his kingdom. This is what happens with generational sins. They amplify. They multiply. This is why I call it our spiritual COVID-19. David allowed for his true identity to be, to be so muddled by unconfessed sin that nearly after a year he could go on to with his life without knowing the self-deceit that he was living under. And we do that all the time. We don't do that with just one year. Sometimes we'll live for years and years and years. When he confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord, Nathan answered, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Verse 13, it is all, out of all this that Psalms 51 comes. So that's why you got to read 1 Samuel 11 to 12 or 2 Samuel 11 to 12, along with, with Psalm 51. Do it for your devotion this week, every day, for seven days straight. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan answered, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. It is a psalm that we come back over and over again. David uses three words to express his treason against God. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. These three words give prominence to different aspects of sin. Okay, Transgression literally means rebellion. Iniquity literally means that which is twisted or bent. And the original word for sin, as I mentioned, mentioned earlier, means missing the mark or the aim. The word transgression or rebellion is the one that suggests treason and best indicates why David says with so much passionate repentance, against you and you only have I sinned. David expressed this touching sense of helplessness in verse 5. Indeed, I was born guilty. I was a sinner when my mother conceived me. David is expressing the reality of sin's pervasiveness in, in his life. And since infection is present and in all, when the infection is pervasive enough to determine our attitude and our actions, we become traitors to God. Since Adam's fall, the whole human race is sinful by nature. 
That's one thing that, you know, we're, we're preaching a lot of heavy, st- heady stuff. It's all heady. But I, I pray that it hits your heart where it needs to hit. It, hits my, it certainly has hit my heart in the last, last month. Uh, it's a powerful aspect of, 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 of sin. It's denial, okay? Just simply register this fact in your mind. It is not fatal. It is not fatal to be a sinner. It is, a, it is fatal when you deny that you are a sinner. Let me say that again. It is not fatal to be a sinner. Denying that you are a sinner is fatal. So the sins of dissension, quarreling, factions, anger, slander, friction, suspicion, malice, or devastating anti-community sins, the sins of attack on communal peace, as Al said in his opening remarks. These are sins that show Cain and Abel still struggling down the ages, struggling in us and our society and our churches. But we have reason to think the struggle will one day cease, okay? And I'm coming down. I'm going to wrap it up by talking about grace, okay? I'll, let you, I'll leave you in a good place, trust me, okay? We don't want visitors to say, oh, that UBC, they're preaching sin too much. Here's grace. One day, our struggle will stop. It will cease. As Oliver O'Donovan, in his book, Resurrection and Moral Order, he said, it is Jesus Christ who represented both innocent Abel and guilty Cain. And he reconciled them on the cross to each other and to God. Jesus Christ, the naturally innocent one, the natural able, became sin for us. For our sake, he became sin. He made him who, who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus Christ took Cain's place as well as Abel's. And when this terrible struggle between these old foes was over, on that resurrection morning, God raised the victim of envy, the one who had been slain, the one whose blood had been crying out from the ground for so many centuries. On this singular event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all Christians center our hope for shalom to be restored. Only inside the cradle of grace Can we even see the true depth and the stubbornness of our sin? This knowledge of God in ourselves opens us up to a whole range of opportunities to worship God, to please Him, to beg His pardon. And when we fail, receive, receive His renewing grace. Out of gratitude to use our lives to weave a whole pattern of friendship, service and moral beauty add moral beauty to the world we could describe our situation like this we must trust and obey in order to rise to the full stature of who we are as sons and daughters of the living god to mature into the image of god to grow into our adult roles in god's grand purpose of redeeming the nations God has in mind not just what we should be, but also what one day we could be. God doesn't want slaves. He wants intelligent kids. 
God wants from us not numb, mindless obedience, but devoted freedom, creativity, and energy. That's what the grace of God is for, not simply to balance a ledger between good works and not good works, but grace stimulates spurts of growth and zeal, enthusiasm to see shalom renewed and restored one day. And we'll be grateful for the gift of life and all of its pain, all of its wonder. We are grateful for God's grace. And of course, I can't let one sermon go without a C.S. Lewis quote, Pastor Mark. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you make, I make every single day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today that we do is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never even dreamed about. And apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. So stop me, Pastor Mark, if you catch me being angry in the pastoral search team meeting, all right? I'm going to trust you to keep me accountable, all right, brother? Every day we cry out with Paul, wretched man that I am, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? I didn't give you the answer a while ago. There's a purpose because I wanted to wait until the end here. The only right answer is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, delivered us once for all, and he will deliver us day by day. As believers, we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved ultimately for all eternity at the return of Christ. In the meantime, you and I will continue to live in this tension between the already and the not yet, okay? Even when we want to do the good that we want to do, like feed the hungry, give away lunch boxes. trust me, evil is right there with us. It's called pride. Oh, look at the, all the good that we're doing. In chapter 8, Paul would show that the means by which our daily deliverance from the indwelling power of sin comes by walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and not setting our minds on the things of the flesh, but on the things of the Spirit. We will continue as long as we live to rely on the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God who lives within us, and He is the one who helps us to overcome the depth of our sin. Let's pray. I'm going to pray, and then uh, Brother Al's going to uh, come and, and, and uh, lead us in the prayer of confessional. Just as he, as he leads us in that song, Created Me a Clean Heart, think about, reflect on those words that David, you know, said so many years ago, and apply that to your life. So, Heavenly Father, thank you that you heard our prayers, that you spoke to both sinners and saints alike. Lord, we are surrounded by 10,000 snares and temptations without and within us. Defend us, Lord. We need your defense today. When sloth seizes us, 
Lord. Give us a fresh view of shalom and of heaven, Lord. When sinners entice us, Lord, help us to flee from our youthful passions. When sensual pleasures tempt us, Lord, purify and refine us, Lord, with your refiner's fire. When we desire worldly possessions, Lord, help us to be rich in good works towards towards you, Lord. When the vanities of this world ensnares us, Lord, let us not plunge into new guilt or ruin, Lord. May we remember, we remember that we are dignant, we are dignified children that you have created in your own image. Lord, help us not to be too busy to attend to our souls, Lord. Help us not to be so engrossed with time that we neglect the things of of eternity, Lord. Help us not only to live, but to grow towards you. Form our minds, our thoughts, to right notions of faith and worship, Lord. May we not judge of grace by wrong conceptions, Lord, nor measure our spiritual growth by the efforts of our own natural flesh. Lord, may we seek after an increase of your divine love to you. Lord, your will, may your will be done in our lives, Lord. Give us patience and fortitude in our souls that we may grow to be more like Christ and to be conformed to his image, every part of us, Lord, so that we can say that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which you have prepared in advance for us to do. And it is in his precious name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.